So in this book of Joel, we've seen that an, an external crisis can be just the beginning of something that takes place within. When life goes wrong, often what we do is we, we look around and we ask, why is this happening to me? Why is this not happening to them? And from there, it's only a matter of time before we ask, I wonder what they're all saying about me. What do they think of me? We call this secondary internal crisis, shame. Shame can live in our hearts long after the primary crisis has been resolved. And what we know is that many people live with the burden of shame for their entire lives. And so as God promises to restore the people of Joel by giving them all sorts of external things, food, worship, homes, he also promises to take away some of those internal things that are lingering, especially shame. Joel 2.27, my people shall never again be put to shame. Now this raises a question. And we've been too busy to think about it. With all these bugs coming in and everything trashed, we've been far too busy with this huge primary crisis to think about the secondary stuff. But now we can. If we feel ashamed, who are these people in front of whom we feel it? Who are they? And what were they doing while our life was falling apart? Where were they? There's a hint just a tiny hint in Joel 2.17. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Just a tiny hint in this huge crisis that the nations surrounding Israel, their neighbors, had been sitting back and just enjoying the show. They were laughing at them, kind of looking at Israel like a meme on the fail blog and just zooming in and, and watching them fall down. Today, what we discover is, in fact, what these neighbors did was immeasurably worse. They weren't just passive observers from afar, but rather actively they came into Israel and they took advantage of the people of God when they were down. Look at Joel 3.2. They have scattered them among the nations, verse 3, and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. They sold people like animals at a county fair. The sums involved, the amount of money they actually got for these humans was derisorily small. The misery they were willing to inflict upon people for next to nothing is absolutely horrific. Verse 3. They traded a boy for a prostitute. They stole a child out of his home and sold him as a slave for the rest of his life for the price of a one-night stand. They sold a girl for wine. A little girl. Just to get drunk. It's worse in Hebrew. The image area is sort of richer in Hebrew. Boy means offspring or descendant. It just carries with it the idea that they were willing to end an entire lineage, a family line came to end with this deal. Girl, 
It's a really funny word. One scholar translates it lass or lassie. And it uh, makes me think of all the pet names that I have for my little girl. When you love someone and you live with them and they do funny things, it, it, you develop little names for them that flow from those events. And every time you use the name, it reminds you of the richness and the intimacy of, of your family life. I've got many names for Hannah because I love her. Another translates this word, girl, damsel. It's a funny old word, isn't it? In the stories of old, what were damsels always in? Yeah, damsel in distress. We know this. It's a vulnerable girl of marriageable age, the kind of person that you want to protect. And she has the thrill of her wedding night open before her and a whole life of possibilities ahead of her, only to find it snatched away by a pagan brute who uses her like a trash can. The account is absolutely grotesque. If your feelings about this right now are running high, just imagine how the parents would have felt to see their kids treated thus. As a parent, if you cannot protect your child from something that's happening to them, what internal crisis do you go through? Shame. The shame of it. I couldn't help. And then what? You've lived with the shame for several months as you're lying in bed at night, churning through what happened and what you might have been able to do and torturing yourself about where they are and what is happening to them. What are you going to want to do if you ever get your hands upon the people that did this? We all know the answer, don't we? Our zeal to right injustices basically sells thousands of movies and books every single year. We all know that feeling, don't we? Think about classic westerns for a moment, like High Plains Drifter, Pale Rider, or True Grit. It's the same plot. We love those guys. Think about modern thrillers like The Punisher, or The Equalizer, or John Wick. Trailer number four was just released last night. I've not watched it because I love my wife, and she's really into it. It's the same plot, isn't it? It's the same plot. Those radically different kind of movies are basically the same thing. It is, in fact, the mainstay of everything from Disney to DC. It's the same story. I would suggest to you that the most famous kind of revenge or justice speech in cinema history comes from the movie Gladiator. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. We root for characters like this, don't we? We hear this speech, and the hairs go up on the back of our necks. We love this stuff. I mean, who, who amongst us watched Gladiator and thought, I hope that bloke gets stabbed? No one, that movie would suck. No one would go and see a film like that. It never happens. We, we pay our money to watch these films because we crave justice. We love these kind of avenging angel characters. We're wired for justice. And if you do not think that human beings are wired for justice, just spend a morning with some three-year-olds and see what happens. <laughs> oh, boy. In 1996, a young law student went down to the university campus Malaysian store and purchased a whole fish and a ball of string. And he measured the string absolutely perfectly and tied 
one end of it round the tail of the fish. And he pinned the other end of the string to the ceiling just outside of someone's bedroom door. And he pulled the fish back and knocked on the door. And as the door swung open, he let go of the fish and he ran as fast as he could. Was the noise that young man heard. Historians debate many details of the great Lonsdale prank war of 96, but they all agree about the cause. It was me. I started it. And then when the girl who was hit in the face trashed my car and left the fish on the windshield wiper sticking up like this, <laughs> I complained that she'd gone too far. What did she say to me? What did my friend Charlie say? Instead of saying sorry, she said, you deserved it. You had it coming. She was right. She was right. We won justice. Why did all of our friends cheer when she did that to my car? Because I was the bad guy. Here's the thing. We want justice, but here's the thing. You cannot experience the renewal of God if you are the one seeking to bring about the justice yourself in your own strength. Renewal is incompatible with holding a grudge. Why? Why are these things incompatible? Number one, you deserved justice. But what you received was grace. You do not have any moral high ground from which to judge anyone at all. You have no moral high ground from which to avenge yourself. You might, in a relative sense, be better than other people. I know you. You're my church. You are a bit better than a lot of people. But you're not good in an absolute sense. You're not perfect. No one is. So you're not the judge. And Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 18 about this, the parable of the unforgiving servant. The servant, as you heard a few moments ago, has an enormous debt. It's the equivalent of about 20 years' wages. And so he goes to the master and he begs. He says, please have patience with me, which is totally absurd. It's not a matter of patience. It's an impossible debt, totally unpayable. So the master gives to him grace. No sooner is the debt released than the servant runs out. He finds a man who owes him a much smaller amount, about 20 weeks' wages. And he has this guy thrown into a debtor's jail. And when the master finds out, he's outraged. The crowd is outraged. Everyone is outraged. The parable, though, that Jesus tells is about himself. He's the master. It reveals to us something of the scale of how much it cost Jesus to forgive us our sins. You cannot see Christ Jesus hanging upon the cross, soaked in shame for you and for your sins. Receive that grace and then turn around and look for revenge on someone else. So Jesus says to Russell Crowe, you can have your vengeance in this life, but you will then receive it in the next. Judging and grudging are incompatible with the grace of God. That much is clear. But we still want justice, don't we? And we still have that craving. 
for, for wrongs to be put right. We want justice. We are not satisfied with only grace. The idea that everybody gets away with it is, is somehow lacking as a doctrine. And uh, I wonder if this is in part because many of us, we believe in a caricature of grace. And therefore, what we believe in is a caricature of God. It's popular right now to say things like this. Well, God loves everybody. Therefore, God loves what everybody does. But my God, give that a little G, my God will never judge. My God will will bless whatever I do. If I like it, he likes it because he likes me. God is love. Think about this for just a moment, these popular ideas. Could you imagine watching a Batman movie and the Joker is torturing someone in a room and Batman just happens to chance past the room, looks in, sees what's going on and just shrugs and walks on by, gives a thumbs up to the Joker and the movie ends. Could you imagine a movie like that? Who would go and watch it? What a terrible movie that would be. No one would root for a Batman like that. No one would find that movie acceptable. What we do when we go to watch Batman is we go to watch a bad guy getting beaten up. That's why we go. We want justice as well as grace. Here's the second reason to avoid revenge. Justice is on the way. Justice is coming. And we do not want to stand in the way of what God is about to do. Our notions of justice are inadequate. Gods are perfect, and justice is on the way. Joel 3, verse 1. When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. It's a symbolic name. Jehoshaphat, by the way, literally means Yahweh has judged. It's in the past tense. This judgment is sealed. Highly symbolic place, the valley of the judgment of God. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. My people. My land. He's our father. They just stole a child of God. That little girl they kidnapped belonged to God. And verse 5, you've taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. They stole the holy things, the temple things of God, and they put them to use in their pagan shrines and they desecrated those things. They splattered those things with babies' blood and the detritus of the shrine prostitutes that work there. What filth they did with the things of God. This is the most appalling piece of imagery that we can find in Scripture as they worship their foul demons in their little hillside shacks. God is not okay with this kind of thing. You've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Verse 7, behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them. They are coming home. Missing child, found. And I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Past tense. There is a reckoning on the way. It's a perfect reckoning. Inexorably 
executed. By the way, next week, we'll see the agents of this justice are the people of God. They will get their blood, but it will be under the perfect will and direction of the God of justice. Not an ounce more or less than is correct. Not a minute too early or too soon or too late. But verse 4, I will return your payments on your own head swiftly and speedily. Perfect justice, perfectly timed, meticulously brought about by the perfect judge. Holding a grudge, seeking revenge, is both a denial of the grace that we receive and it is to put ourselves in the place of God. It's doubly wrong. In Romans 12, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. All of us, I believe, understand that internal feeling and that desire for revenge. We all get it. Revenge is actually a right and godly desire for justice. Wrongly coupled with an ungodly desire to be the judge. So here's something else that God wants to take away. As we're renewed, as crisis turns to renewal for the people of God, as well as your shame, God wants to take away that thirst that we have to get people back, to avenge ourselves. He wants to remove from us the burden of, of that feeling. This thing that long outlives the primary crisis and maybe in a sense keeps that crisis alive, this need to get people back and seek revenge, that sense that evil is getting away with it and if we don't do something about it, then no one will. God wants to lift all of that away as we are renewed. Your enemies, either, will receive the grace that you did not deserve or the judgment that we all do. It's one or the other. There's no middle scenario that needs you to be Batman. Joel reveals to us God is the God of justice and, and of grace. I'll finish with this. Uh, a few weeks ago, I referenced a TED talk on shame by Brené Brown. And uh, there's another one that I commend to you by Monica Lewinsky. And... Uh, Again, just like Brené Brown, there are things in the talk I would not say, and they are not my theologians on every point, but uh, they have a lot to say and a great deal of currency in this subject. Now, having experienced abuse by a man in a position of both power and trust, Monica Lewinsky experienced even worse by what she describes as the stone-throwing mob, this sort of pack of, of voyeurs and judges she describes how her mother made her shower with the door open for fear that she might take her life behind a locked door and how powerless her mother felt to protect her and, and what a breakdown that caused in the heart of a parent. And then she says this, a marketplace has emerged, there's that trading language, where public humiliation is a commodity and shame is an industry. How is the money made? clicks. 
The more shame, the more clicks. The more clicks, the more advertising dollars. We are in a dangerous cycle. The more we click on this kind of gossip, the more numb we get to the human lives behind it. So you'd think, therefore, she'd say, right, now I have a platform. Now I have the camera and the script. And so I'm going to get my revenge. I'm going to put these things right. But she doesn't do that. Instead of using the platform to judge, she uses it to help us imagine how the cycle might stop. She says, the shift begins with something simple, but it's not easy. We need to return to the long-held value of compassion and empathy. Online, we have a compassion deficit and empathy crisis. I completely agree. But where does this long-held value come from? She doesn't know. It's not inside of our own hearts. It's not some little internal job that we need to do. We've seen what our hearts produce, have we not? Joel says this ability to break the cycle comes from knowing the God of justice is also the God of grace. Therefore, Yahweh is the only one who from a crisis brings about true renewal for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, sometimes seeing the true horror of sin throws into stark relief the true majesty and glory of your grace. And so we find ourselves a people sort of between the two. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that as well as receiving your grace and your forgiveness for whatever it is we may have done, that you would then motivate us to offer that grace to others but to rest in the security that if that is something they reject, as a God of justice, you will bring about perfect judgment at the perfect time. Until that moment, Lord Jesus, we just pray, come, Lord Jesus, when you're ready, and find us ready too. Amen.